0: So, if you would open up with me to our sermon text, which does come once again today from the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 19. And we will be in the very middle of this chapter, looking this morning at verses 8 to 18. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 8 to 18. So, hear now the word of the Lord. So, he, that is Elijah, got up and ate and drank. And the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Then the Lord told him, Go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from the town of Abel-Mahalah to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hazael will be killed by Jehu and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. That ends the reading of God's holy word and let us pray. Almighty God, heavenly father, we thank you again for your word to us. And we do pray this morning that as we sit at the foot of this word today, Lord, that you would meet with us in every way. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be present here, that your spirit would be in the preaching of your word today and in our hearts, and that as such, you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to understand your word, that you would plant it deeply within our hearts and souls, that it would begin to bear fruit even now and persist to bear fruit until the day you call each one of us home. We pray it in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. And we do come back to our sermon series this morning. And I think we find ourselves in a passage that if you've ever studied it before, or even just read it before, that may seem a little bit confusing. Some questions that we have that emerge even as we read right over it. For instance, let me just give six that we could ask here. What is the significance of 40 days and 40 nights of Elijah's travel to Mount Sinai? What is the nature of the question God is actually asking Elijah? What is Elijah's answer all about? And then, of course, we see this wind and earthquake and fire, but we read the Lord wasn't in it. What what is that about? Why is the Lord not in it? And then what do we make of him being in a gentle whisper? And what do we do with the instructions he gives Elijah? You see, that's six major questions that come up in just these 11 verses. And as I mentioned last week, if you were here, if you listened to it, I am taking a bit of a different perspective on this chapter as many of the popular commentators do. I think many of the commentators out there look at this chapter and see this as a self-obsessed, whining, bitter, or even spiteful Elijah. One whose heart is hardened and unmoved in this chapter despite God's graciousness. But I don't think that's the picture that we have in this chapter at all. I think that there's something bigger going on here and I would agree with Dale Ralph Davis what he has to say here he says there has been much ink spilt arguing for a proper approach to an interpretation of first kings 19 this has been necessary because the passage has been for the most part and in my view grossly misinterpreted you see as I mentioned last week I think there is something very significant going on in this passage, a very just seminal event even in the life of God's people, something that helps us understand the nature of God's working in the midst of a fallen world, something that is intended to help us too when we reach these places of despondency, having low spirits due to a loss of hope and courage, and ultimately it's a passage that gives us incredible hope and courage that we need to continue in the race of faith we've been given right now because I think it helps us understand the nature of what God is doing in the world now, today. So this morning, I actually have three main points. Now, don't worry, I said this this morning. Hank was worried it was gonna be a longer sermon. It's not longer, it's the same length of time, um, but it's just broken in three points because I think there's three distinct Um, elements of this passage that we need to see. So three points today. Point number one, official charges will be made against those who break God's covenant. Official charges will be made against those who break God's covenant. Point number two, a terrible judgment awaits those who break God's covenant. A terrible judgment awaits those who break God's covenant. But point number three, we live in the time of salvation before that final judgment arrives. We live in the time of salvation before that final judgment arrives. So point number one, official charges will be made against those who break God's covenant. We see this in verses eight and nine. And let us remember where we left off last week. Elijah has, as we saw, reached that point of despondency, which is to say he is in a place of incredibly low spirits due to a loss of hope and courage. You see, the battle in chapter 18 on Mount Carmel was a decisive victory for the Lord over Baal worship and all of Baal's prophets. So we get to the end of chapter 18. All of the prophets of Baal were dead which means that the only remaining force of Baal worship in Israel was the leading idolater and murderer herself, Queen Jezebel. And the great hope at the end of 18 was that King Ahab would be faithful to the law of Moses and have this idolater and murderer put to death, which would consolidate the victory on Mount Carmel and establish real faithfulness to the Lord once again. But that's not what happens. Jezebel knows from Ahab coming back to her that we're in a place now where either I have to die, Jezebel thinking this, or Elijah must die. And so she threatens Elijah, which reveals Ahab's decision that he has chosen Jezebel and Baal instead of Elijah and Yahweh, and it sends Elijah off to protect his life. Elijah Elijah goes south, drops his servant off, heads into the wilderness seeking the Lord, and he asked the Lord to let him tap out of the race he had been given. And that's what we saw last week. But you see, Elijah's job is not done. He had an essential role to play in chapter 18 on top of Mount Carmel. But we are seeing now in this chapter, he also has an essential role to play on top of Mount Sinai. So the Lord gives a brief but sufficient time of spiritual refreshment before sending Elijah off for this next task, which is where our passage picks up today. And I want y'all to see how important verse 8 is in interpreting this whole passage and seeing exactly what's going on in chapter 19. So let me read verse 7 from last week and then verse 8 again here. Verse 7, then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he, Elijah, got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, same thing here, the mountain of God. Now again, y'all, there is a lot here. First, as we mentioned last week, we do need to see the intentionality in these verses. It's important to see that this journey to Mount Sinai for Elijah has divine uh, authorization. The angel of the Lord clearly seems to be strengthening Elijah for a journey that the Lord desires him to take. Then that is confirmed when we read how long his journey was, 40 days and 40 nights. And let me say, we can hardly scratch the surface this morning of all that that communicates. But let me say just a few things here. The 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness for Elijah, traveling the almost 300 miles to Mount Sinai, this is communicating something to us. For instance, remember, the rains of judgment poured down on Noah's ark for 40 days and 40 nights. It was judgment for the whole world and salvation for Noah and his family. It is Moses on top of Mount Sinai himself spending 40 days and 40 nights with the Lord receiving the law, the very terms of the covenant which would have offered their salvation and judgment. The spies in Israel scouted out the promised land for 40 days and 40 nights. Goliath appears and taunts the Israelite army for 40 days and 40 nights before David defeats him. It is God through the prophet Jonah, giving Nineveh 40 days and 40 nights to repent before judgment would come. It's 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness for Jesus himself being tempted by Satan where he gains a monumental victory. And then it's 40 days and 40 nights that the Lord Jesus Christ appears to his disciples here on earth between his resurrection and his ascension. You see, 40 days and 40 nights is not the author of 1 Kings just accounting for his whereabouts for this amount of time. It is an indicator that something significant in the history of God's people is about to occur. In fact, one very effective way, if you ever wanted to effectively share the gospel through the scriptures with someone, go through those points right there, right? All these places of 40 days and 40 nights, share with them Noah, to Moses, to the spies, to David and Goliath, to Elijah, to Nineveh, to Jesus in the wilderness, and then Jesus's glory in his resurrection and ascension. So this clues us into the fact that something major in the history of God's people is about to happen. And that gets at the heart of Elijah's unique role. You see, Elijah is the Lord's great prophet. And as we said a few weeks back, The role of the prophet in large part is to be the covenant prosecutor. It is the official role in Israel for the prophet to bring charges against God's people when they are in violation and break God's covenant. That is one of the most essential roles that the office of prophet carries. So with that in mind, doesn't the whole scene begin to become clear here? Here is the Lord's great prophet, the Lord's covenant prosecutor, being summoned by God to Mount Sinai, the very place that he gave the terms of the covenant to Moses. The 40 days and 40 nights clues us into the fact that this is going to be a scene that is holding out judgment and salvation. This is not any other day or any other task This is a divinely ordained scene where judgment and salvation is hanging in the balance, just as it did for Noah, for Moses, for the spies, for David and Goliath, for Nineveh, in the wilderness for Jesus, and of course, after his resurrection. So with all of this in mind, which I think is very clear in the text, it makes sense of God's question in verse nine. What are you doing here Elijah. In other words, prosecutor, what business do you have to present before me, the judge? State your intention and bring your charges. What is your purpose? What are you doing here, Elijah? And that's what he does. He brings his charges. And may I say, this is not a scene that is unique to the days of Elijah. Brothers and sisters, there will be a day where every human must stand and give an account for their actions, for their choices, for their decisions. And that day will include official charges being made against all who have broken God's covenant, which in and of ourselves would be every human on earth, for no one is righteous. No, not one. So the picture that begins to become clear here in verses 8 and 9 is one that gives us insight into a day that is still ahead for all of us. It reminds us that there will be a day when official charges are made against all who have broken God's covenant. And that leads to our second point. Point number two, a terrible judgment awaits all who break God's covenant. We see this in verses 10 through 12. And in these verses, we first see Elijah bringing his official charges against Israel. Remember, this is against the northern kingdom. If you've forgotten, the kingdom has been split. At this point, we have the southern kingdom, two tribes in the south, ten in the north. These are the charges against the northern kingdom. And it's at this point that people want to critique Elijah's comments. And by the way, uh, one commentator, Darrell Davis, brought up an interesting fact. Of course, humans want to critique his comments here. We want to critique any comments that would bring charges against us for violations against the Lord. People will want to see this as Elijah whining or making even false statements. They may say half truths. But I think Davis is right when he says Is it too wild to consider that Elijah, finding himself in the shuddering presence of the Almighty, may have been speaking the truth? So let's look at the charges. First, he says that he has zealously served the Lord, and some could see this. If we don't see him as covenant prosecutor, this sounds like a prideful statement to make, but if it's true and he's covenant prosecutor, doesn't this make sense? It's just a statement that the prosecutor would make before the great king, right? I'm coming before you. I have zealously served you, so we see this is certainly true. That's every evidence we've got in the scriptures. That's true. Second, He says the people of Israel have broken their covenant with God. And again, no doubt that is true. We have seen that all throughout 1 Kings, that that's a true statement. That is the general charge. Third, he says that the people have torn down the Lord's altars, which we know at least one altar was torn down, the one on Mount Carmel. So we certainly would believe that this also is true. And fourth, he says that the people have killed all the prophets and he is the only one left and now they're trying to kill him. And this is one we need to investigate just a little bit. Is what Elijah says here true? I will contend that what Elijah means in saying this, as covenant prosecutor, it is true. And here's how. First, most people say that Elijah is rebuked by this point in verse 18 and that That proves Elijah's mistaken here. They say Elijah claims to be the only one left, but in verse 18, the Lord says that there are actually 7,000 who have never bowed the knee to Baal. But look closely at the verses. We see this is actually two different categories of people. Elijah says that he is the only prophet left, not the only faithful person left. And in the Lord's answer, he does not indicate that these 7,000 or 7,000 prophets left, just that there's 7,000 faithful people left who haven't bowed the knee. So I think it's clear the Lord is not disputing Elijah's claim. The two statements are not only compatible, but they make sense. There may be 7,000 in Israel, a remnant, who haven't worshipped Baal, but none of them are authorized to bring charges against the nation on, on Mount Sinai. That has to be done by one of the Lord's prophets, which Elijah is claiming to be the only one left who can do that. So that is the essence of the claim. Elijah is the only one left who is able to bring charges against Israel, which raises another question. What about those 100 prophets we learned about in chapter 18? The 100 prophets that Obadiah had hidden from Queen Jezebel. What about them? Well, I will say, first of all, don't know for sure that they actually are still alive. Okay, so we're not positive on that fact. I do think they probably are still alive, but even if they are still alive, we know that they are in hiding, right? They are not active prophets. They are not actively engaged in the role of prophet in the land of Israel at this time. They are in hiding. So, This makes sense of 18. Remember, when the time to arrive at Mount Carmel comes, what we see is that Baal has 450 active prophets. And how many does the Lord have? One. That is what chapter 18 is showing us. I would imagine there could be other potential prophets of Baal throughout the kingdom who were not active at the time that could be raised up, just as the same can be said of the Lord's prophets. But the text in 1 Kings 18 makes clear that there are 450 active prophets of Baal and one active prophet of the Lord, period. And that is the point I believe Elijah's making, that all of the Lord's active prophets have been killed. And he is the only one left in Israel available to bring charges against the nation for breaking their covenant with the Lord. And if that's what Elijah is saying, then that absolutely is a true statement. And so I think we see here, Elijah's claiming to be the only active prophet who is able to bring formal charges as covenant prosecutor and now they're seeking to kill him too. And one more thing, why was Jezebel so upset? Why was she so bent on killing Elijah? Well, Jezebel had killed all of the active prophets of the Lord except Elijah. And Elijah has killed all the active prophets of Baal, except for their leader Jezebel. And again, the tension that is now at the center of 1 Kings 19 is, who will die? Jezebel or Elijah? And that again is going to give us insight into why Elijah will never die. We'll get to that when we get to the book of 2 Kings. But that's the conflict that has ensued. It's where we are. Remember Jezebel called upon her gods to punish her if she couldn't have Elijah killed and now here we have Elijah calling upon his God to bring formal charges and see what the Lord intends to do. Again this is the picture we've got and that's where we see the Lord's incredible response. Elijah brings his charges And the Lord responds by sending a mighty windstorm that hits the mountain with such a terrible blast that these mountainous rocks are broken loose. Then he sends a mighty earthquake. Then he sends a mighty fire. Three terrifying acts, all that are demonstrated. But in each one, we read the same thing, something that's curious. We read, the Lord was not in them. The Lord was not in the terrible windstorm. The Lord was not in the terrible earthquake. The Lord was not in the terrible fire. What do we make of this? Well, I think we see three decisive acts of how God intends to judge this world at the final day, how he intends to bring punishment on those who have broken their covenant with God. But because the time for judgment has not yet arrived in 1 Kings 19, the Lord is not fully personally in them yet. This is a preview. This is a foretaste, you might say, of what judgment will be like, brothers and sisters, on that day when the Lord is in that terrible windstorm. And he is in that terrible earthquake. And he is in that terrible fire. That's what Elijah sees from the Lord. His answer to Elijah first is to demonstrate a tiny preview, a foretaste of the judgment he intends to bring on those who have broken his covenant. But the Lord isn't in them just yet because the time for that judgment to be poured out has not arrived just yet. And by the way, this makes sense of a lot of things we see throughout the scriptures from this point forward. We see a number of times these three types of things come up again and again. For instance, 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 5 and 7. Speaking of final judgment, how it gets to there, they deliberately forget that God made his heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out from water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. So we see this picture in Second Peter of the, the world being destroyed, not with water by a flood, but by fire. Then Revelation 6, verses 12 to 17, these verses are a picture of final judgment, even in chapter 6. We read this, I watched as the Lamb broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth, and the moon became as red as blood. Then the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from a tree shaken by a strong wind or a strong windstorm. The sky rolled up like a scroll and all of the mountains and islands were moved from their places. Get this here. Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful and every slave and free person all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains And they cried to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to survive? Imagine a windstorm. Like we think of our windstorms and earthquakes being brutal with all the devastation they cause. But imagine one so mighty that it causes the sky to be rolled up. What powerful shaking that must be. Think about this. Why are our present windstorms, earthquakes, and fires for all the destruction they cause? Why are they not this bad? Why are they not what we read in Second Peter and Revelation? Brothers and sisters, answer, because the Lord is not in them, not in this full personal way. They are previews. They are foretastes of what it will be like when the Lord on that final day of judgment is in that windstorm and earthquake and fire. And y'all, that is what Elijah sees. That's what I believe is going on here. Elijah is the only active prophet alive who is able to bring true charges against those who have broken God's covenant. And the Lord gives him a preview, a foretaste of what that day will be like when he brings his ultimate judgment against all who have broken his covenant. That is the scene before us in 1 Kings 19 which leads to our final point. And I think this helps us understand the days in which we live in now. It's, it's pretty amazing. I think it gives us just incredible clarity to what this era of human history is about. Point number three, <clears throat> we live in the time of salvation before that time of judgment arrives. We see this in verses 13 to 18. And you see, after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. It beckons Elijah, and once again, the Lord asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Implication, you brought your charges against my people. They are in order, they are truthful, and I have just demonstrated to you what their penalty will be ultimately if they remain unrepentant. But the time has not yet come for me to be in the windstorm or the earthquake or the fire, not yet. So let's do this again. Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah reads the charges a second time. And then the Lord gives his answer, not for how he will deal with it in ultimate judgment, but how he's going to deal with it in the immediate present, in the, in the immediate future. You see, this is the day of salvation. This is the time where salvation is held forward even as temporary consequences are gonna unfold. The Lord tells him, in essence, go back the way you came, go back through the wilderness into Damascus, anoint a new king of Aram, anoint a new king of Israel, and anoint a new prophet to take your place. And while Elijah's doing that, the Lord is going to be at work preserving a remnant for himself, preserving 7,000 who will remain faithful amid all the wickedness. Now, we're gonna see in the weeks and months ahead, some specific aspects of these instructions play out so I don't need to go into all of those this morning but today I want us to see that big picture of what he's showing us that we have an explicit statement of how God intends to act in human history until the day of judgment arrives and it's fourfold on this big level all right first in his anointing a new king of Aram we see God's control over the nations, right? Not his people in particular, but over the nations. In his anointing a new king in Israel, number two, we see him having sovereign control over his people, right? Number three, in the anointing of a new prophet, we see his control to ensure there will always be a witness to call God's people back to him. There will always be a witness to say, return to the Lord your God, and a witness to bring charges against those who are unrepentant and have broken God's covenant. And fourth, in the Lord's preserving a remnant, we see the specific focus God has on always maintaining a witness for him, on always maintaining a faithful group who loves and serves the Lord. Taken together, we see that until the time of final judgment comes, the Lord is committed to number one, maintaining control over the nations at large. Number two, maintaining control over his people in particular. Number three, calling his people to return to him before it's too late. And number four, to always ensure a faithful remnant to him being preserved. And y'all, let me make this observation. Elijah is despondent right? Or he was at least despondent before he arrived at Sinai in his journey. Maybe he's not at that place as covenant prosecutor, but he was despondent. And the Lord reminds him of these four things. Well, first he reminds him, actually, yes, you're zealous for me. You're despondent because you don't see the kingdom coming in all of its fullness like your heart yearns for it to, but fear not because that day will come. It's just not arrived yet. And then he meets Elijah in his despondency by showing him his fourfold hope that no matter how hopeless Elijah or us may ever feel, how much courage we may lack, we can always know the Lord is in control of the nations. He is in control of his people. He is always preserving those to call people back to him. And he is always preserving a faithful remnant. That is the story of history, brothers and sisters. That is how God has acted in the past. That is what God is doing right now. And if the Lord delays even a day, that is what he will continue to do in the future until his son returns. So as we conclude our sermon this morning, I wanna make one final observation. God has made clear that the time of judgment is sure and certain but it is not yet time. And there could perhaps be the question, what is God going to do from this point forward? From 1 Kings 19 until the day of judgment arrives, how is God going to be in control? How is God going to preserve a remnant? What exactly is God primarily doing? Maybe you have that question in 2024. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Doesn't he see all the turmoil? Why hasn't he returned? What is this whole season of life about? Why doesn't he just come back right now in all of the fullness of the windstorm and earthquake and fire so we can be brought into the new heavens and the new earth? Lord, what are you doing right now that's so important that you won't send Jesus back? Do you ever feel that sometimes in your heart? If so, enter Elisha. You see, Elijah's name means the Lord is God. And that's what Elijah's ministry has been all about. He has shown that the Lord is God. Baal does not exist. There is one God. He is the one true God. He is the Lord. That's been all of what Elijah's ministry has been about. But there is now one important work left to do. Enter Elisha, whose name means God saves or God is saved salvation. The Lord who is God is the one for this season of life who is saving. We will see so much of that in the ministry of Elijah. As Ian Proven says, the new era now belongs to Elisha. God saves. And actually, we will see in many important ways that just as the ministry of Elijah was a precursor to the ministry of John the Baptist, in many important ways Elisha is going to be a direct precursor to Jesus Christ. For what does Jesus's name mean? The Lord saves. Brothers and sisters, you and I live in this period of time where God continues to delay judgment, ultimate judgment, because he has a work that he has deemed incredibly important. And that is a work of saving people from their sins. Saving people From this day of final judgment, saving people from having to be left out in the open to experience the fullness of that terrible windstorm and earthquake and fire when the Lord is fully in them. He sent his son Jesus to experience and pay the fullness of that penalty, right? That's what Jesus took on himself. The fullness of that final judgment we should have paid in order that we might be saved from that judgment. And Jesus rose again from the grave, demonstrating his sure and certain victory over sin and death and Satan. And for all who have trusted in him, y'all, that victory is ours as well, because we are living in the time of salvation before that day of judgment arrives. So this morning, as we reflect on this massive mountaintop experience in 1 Kings, may I simply just ask all of you, and children as well, as y'all look up, I wanna ask you this question. Brothers and sisters, what are you doing here? What are you doing here today? Why are you here? Why are you in this place? If the answer to that question is, Because I love Jesus and I lay myself down before him that I can turn from my sins and be rescued from that day of final judgment. Then brothers and sisters, there will never be a day that anyone, a covenant prosecutor could lay before God charges that you have broken the covenant that haven't been paid for. That day will not ever come because it already has come because Jesus paid for that when you have trusted in him and repented of your sins, you can know that just as Elijah was safe from the storms that blew, you will be found safe in Christ when that final judgment is poured out. But if not, and that's not why you're here this morning, if you're here for any reason other than that, may I warn you, one day soon, there will be a windstorm and an earthquake and a fire and the Lord will be in it. And all of his fullness. It will be that terrible and awful day of the Lord. So may I implore you, do not let this era of human history where God saves pass you by without being saved. Do not let this day of salvation, even this very moment where the gospel is being proclaimed to you, certain safety and security from that great and terrible and awful day that is being offered now do not let it pass by without being rescued because this era will not last forever and in fact its end really is coming soon In the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen and let us pray almighty god we thank you for your word to us and Lord, we thank you for how so often in our despondency, we feel that desire for your kingdom to come in all of its fullness. And that that's a good thing, that we want that day to come because we are ready, Lord. But we also trust you to bring it in your timing because we love the work you are about right now, which is saving people from that day of judgment. Lord, may you be at work doing that in our church this year and forever, Lord, until the day your son returns. May always the ministry of this church be to be a place where people can be rescued from that day. And Lord, we pray that you would give us that internal conviction to turn to you, repent, and by faith to trust in Christ and celebrate and know that we've been rescued for that day. And also Lord, that you would give us the perseverance and endurance to persevere in this day and age as hard as it is for us, knowing that because the time has not yet come, you are saving people right now, this very minute all around the world. And Lord, we pray even here at Village Press. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to be hopeful and courageous about this work, that you would help us understand what this day and age is all about, and that you would not let us be distracted by the frivolities of this world, but set our hope, all of it, on the glorious salvation that will be revealed when your son returns, and as such that we would rejoice that every day your son delays, more and more are being brought in to the kingdom. Lord, may we be a part of that wonderful ministry. We thank you for your word and we pray it in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.